The collapse of FTX and the related contagion problem have increased the call for regulation of the crypto marketplace. The digitization of supply chains has been slowed by a patchwork of regulatory jurisdictions. The recent fines imposed on Meta in the EU for violating GDPR regulations have highlighted the need for normalized privacy laws. As the Web3 and blockchain era take hold, we need to spend some time to think through how to strike the balance between protecting consumers and providing a stable framework for commerce and overburdening an emerging technology and slowing innovation. Welcome to W3B Talks, an ongoing exploration of the impact of Web3 and blockchain technologies on business, government, and society. My name is Doug Heinzman. I'm the Chief Catalyst at the Blockchain Research Institute. In this episode, we're looking at regulation. And to help us navigate this broad and sometimes complex topic, I am absolutely delighted to welcome Alexander DiGiovanni to the podcast. Alexander is the founding lawyer of Pando Law. He helps businesses and blockchain projects navigate the law. Welcome to the podcast, Alexander. Thanks for having me, Douglas. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is a such a fascinating topic, um, and you know that this this tension between, you know, regulations are kind of important, right? Because you know, without them, there's the the risk of all kinds of abuses of various different freedoms and liberties, um, and and as well as they're important to create stability, right? I mean. The, the SEC has all kinds of regulations around the, the you know, the trading and, and the commerce space, uh, largely as a means to give everyone a collective confidence that there are rules and fairness and thus reduce friction um, to, you know, interact with those systems and those marketplaces. So they provide, a, you know, a, a degree of stability that that enhances overall uh, productivity and, and, and overall efficiency of a system. So, yeah, that's kind of on the one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, we've got, you know, the issue that you can overregulate things to a point where you inhibit the emergence of a new technology, you inhibit innovation, you suppress the deployment of capital that might, you know, support these kinds of innovations. And, you know, I, I remember back, it was, it was in 2019, uh, Hester Pierce, who was the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commissioner, he commented that that regulars tend to be skeptical of change because its consequences are difficult to foresee and figuring out how it fits into existing regulatory frameworks is difficult. And, and I think that really kind of goes to one of the chief dilemmas we have is, is um, you know, on top of all the things we just mentioned, we're looking at a technology space that is that is causing a very, you know, rapid degree of change. And regulatory frameworks kind of definitionally are laggards. They're, you know, it's difficult to change them. And so, so that's kind of the, the, the essential dilemma we're faced with. I mean, how, how do you, you know, you deal with this stuff day in, day out. So how, how do you see this space? I see the regulatory landscape as a really reactive one, uh, especially when it comes to the Web3 world and, and the Biggest example that I've recently seen of this is actually, you know, in response to the USCT and the FTX collapse and and all of that. Um, in early December, the Canadian securities regulators came out with a with a public statement where they said that in the future they're going to deem stable coins as securities. Really? Yeah, yeah. So to me, that's a big example of a reactive statement that's coming from possibly the regulators not fully understanding 
okay, what, you know, USDC, no one really considers USDC a stablecoin. I mean, uh, security. That's right, because and, it functions uh, as a currency. Exactly, exactly. And I think um, this kind of reactive style of regulation um, is, is going to keep bringing on mistakes rather than, you know, if we can sit down and realize, okay, you know, this is what this tech is actually doing. This is what the, you know, offshoots of this tech are producing. And, you know, take a look at USDC, take a look at any other stable coin, and you can, you can clearly see it. I mean, it doesn't really fit the bill as a security. And, and for them to kind of come out with a blanket statement saying, oh, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to start treating stable coins as securities as well. I mean, it, it throws a wedge into the whole system, essentially. Yeah, that's a really fascinating, and I, I see that all over the place where, you know, a lot of people that, that don't study the space in any detail, they kind of, you know, throw the term cryptocurrency out there to describe an awful lot of things without truly appreciating that there are many different kinds of digital assets and they have very different characteristics. And while Bitcoin may be a, a digital bearer asset, um, you know, Ether is a protocol token and it's used as a means of facilitating, you know, commerce within an ecosystem. And stable coins are a functional digital currency. And CBDCs are yet another kind of animal. And then, of course, you know, protocol tokens and governance tokens and, and you know, natural resource tokens. There's all kinds of different digital assets out there. And only a relatively small number of them could be really categorized as a security uh, so I, I think you're on a really interesting point here. And so what's the, what's the solution there? How do, we, how do we stop the regulators from kind of getting in the way of, you know, doing sensible things? Well, for, specifically for this stablecoin issue, I think what they could do to kind of, uh, you know, pull it back a little bit is implement something like a proof of reserve. And I, where, where I can imagine this is kind of bringing... Um, accountants and auditors and giving giving them more involvement in the Web3 space where they can go in and actually actually do a proof of reserve or an audit to show that okay you know this USDC actually can back all of its all of its coins with US dollars and I, I could see things like that being simpler solutions but I think what needs to be done is is essentially uh, a large sit down between the regulators and, and people in the space where, you know, we don't come together as like, you know, two, two different armies, but, you know, we kind of sit down and collaborate and say, okay, this is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to, we're not trying to step into the world of securities law. Um, we're, we're trying to carve our own, our own kind of framework here. And I think if, if the regulators become open to that, um, instead of fitting us into the same box that was created, you know, after the, uh, after the, uh, uh, the stock market crash in, in the 19, uh, late 1920s and early thirties, I think instead of pushing us back into that category, a new legal framework has to be developed. And I'm seeing a little bit of, uh, of positive move towards that in Europe where I think early next month, um, which I guess is in the next coming weeks, um, the EU is going to vote on the uh, Mika framework. Okay, and you think that's going to think that'll help? Like, I mean, it, it, this this kind of goes to 
you know, one of the broader pictures that, uh, or, or topics that we just alluded to, which is kind of the patchwork, right? So, you know, that, that one jurisdiction is thinking about these things in terms of, of being securities and, and other ones aren't, um, you know, that's going to lead to a lot of complexity as more and more of commerce becomes kind of global and multi-jurisdictional. So how, how do we deal with that problem? Yeah. Um, in my ideal world, there would be some kind of uh, international treaty governing, uh, governing the relationships uh, or I guess like the, the cross jurisdictional nature of a lot of these projects, because at the end of the day, you know, that's, that's really where the biggest use cases can, can really, uh, really run wild. Right. And, and be free. Um, because, you know, there's no issue with, with me sending Bitcoin across the world. Like, you know, if someone in, if someone in Brazil, uh, is, you know, if I do a transaction with someone in Brazil and I can send them no problem or, you know, let's say I tokenize an asset and an individual in maybe Switzerland wants to purchase a, a, a token of that asset. Like the Web3 is global in nature. So I think there has to be some kind of international understanding or treaty in place that provides a, a framework where, you know, um, startups and individuals who are building in this space don't have to worry about, okay, you know, we're good in Canada, but are we going to be good in the U.S.? Are we going to be okay in Europe? Are we going to be okay in Japan? Because that's what I see. That's it's an obstacle that I see myself in in my own law practice. Is I'll have I'll have uh, startups come with really great ideas, and we want to make it work. But um, and if it can work in Canada, that's great. Or sometimes I run into the situation where okay, you know, we we can work, we can make this work if we set you up maybe in the Caribbean, but. Um, this, you won't be able to, you know, release this product to Canadians. There, there needs to be some kind of international framework. Yeah. So, so I, I, I totally get that. Those of course are incredibly difficult. I mean, we, in the crypto space, you've got some countries that basically have decided that they're, you know, verboten and, and, you know, shut them all down and, you know, de- declare them illegal. And you've got other jurisdictions that are making, you know, significant, uh, you know, putting in place significant tax incentives to encourage, um, you know, crypto companies to come up and, and set up shop and, uh, and advertise themselves as having, you know, little or no regulation around the space. So there really is this, this patchwork and the, the goals and objectives of the various different uh, policymakers and regulators seem to be very varied across, you know, jurisdictions. So that's a real challenge. The, 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 the case that I'm, I find very interesting is, is around privacy, right? Because we've been dealing with the privacy issue for quite a while, right? We've had, you know, some, some proto-privacy regulations that started coming in place uh, in the early 1990s. But really, it was the, the GDPR regulations in, in the European Union that, that kind of became almost a de facto global standard. And it, it actually seems to me, um, and others have commented in, you know, along a similar vein, that the, the U.S. Uh, and maybe even Canada to a certain extent and a number of other countries, they almost seem to have outsourced regulation around privacy to the Europeans, right? They're saying, yeah, that's, that's good stuff, makes good sense. And because commerce is global, you're going to have to, you know, deal with that. And we'll just kind of, you know, benefit from everyone, you know, having to do that anyway. So, 
instead of kind of getting into the the policy debate uh, locally and dealing with all of the political consequences of, you know, kind of arguing about that, they just outsource it. Is, is, is first of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, is that a, a means of getting to some international norms? Just have one of the major players, you know, figure it out and it just becomes kind of the de facto. So uh, although I don't agree with it, I think it's, it's most likely to happen. And the reason why I don't agree with it is, you know, for, I like to use Ethereum as an example. Like Ethereum is originally a Canadian project, right? And they had to move to Switzerland because Canadian regulation wasn't favorable. And I tell a lot of people, you know, um, the worst thing that could happen is we lose another Ethereum. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I totally agree. Um, and, you know, of course there are, lots of jurisdictions that are setting themselves up to be the next, you know, Zug Switzerland so that they, you know, attract the likes of, of Ethereum um, when countries like Canada can't figure out what this new thing is and design an appropriate regulatory framework that allows it to, you know, prosper. So, so that's totally fair. Um, but, well, let's, let's just dig down the, 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 the privacy space for a little bit because, you know, one of the really big issues uh, or constructs in the Web3 and blockchain world is identity, right? And digital identity and credentials. And these are very fundamental to how we, first of all, express ourselves in, in ecosystems and, and define um, our worth to an ecosystem and, and you know, promote our capabilities and um, our willingness to engage in commerce. And yet, and as also as we as individuals interact with various different systems, especially things like governmental services and healthcare. And, you know, to date, you know, identity has really been almost kind of a, a challenge mechanism that says, you know, that they want to make sure, you know, they know who we are so we can interact with their systems. But, but Web3 allows identity to be tokenized, right? It allows it to be, you know, we all become effectively NFTs that have certain characteristics and as we interact with the healthcare system or others and you know we'll have all kinds of new um both capabilities and it suggests that we're gonna have to do some rethinking about you know the regulation right what does what does you know hipaa mean right or any of the the, the healthcare record storage regulations what do they mean in a world where we have the ability to interact in a peer-to-peer -peer way with various different healthcare um, organizations. So, so how do we how do we modernize some of those regulations to deal with the new digital identity constructs that come out of the Web three world? I think th I, I think the biggest um, consideration that that we're going to have to think about here is is permissioned versus public blockchains. So, for things that are like uh, what I imagine is is for very, I guess, uh, personal or very privileged pieces of information like medical history um, and uh, things like that, maybe even like, you know, uh, any pr legally privileged documents as well, for example, like solicitor-client privilege, things like that. Um, I, I imagine that being, being more uh, home on a, on a permissioned ledger for example, where they, you still get the access of the, or I guess the advantages of, of a distributed ledger system, but there is some kind of uh, centralized mechanism that, that can guarantee that the privacy for, for some of those more privileged 
uh, pieces of information. Whereas general identity, I think for sure sits well on a, on a public ledger. Yeah. Well, I think there's a difference between permissioned and, and public, right? So you can have a permissioned ledger um, on a public blockchain, right? There's all kinds of privacy layer two technologies that are emerging that, you know, still use the Ethereum network as the network of, you know, the, the, the settlement mechanism. Um, and I think, in fact, that probably becomes a much more common mechanism that you've got, you know, public infrastructure yeah. that is supporting all this stuff, but you've got a number of, you know, privacy and permissioning mechanisms that kind of get layered on top of it. So I think that's, we just, you know, differentiate those things. So that, that's kind of interesting. The, um, so, so I agree that, you know, we're going to need to have mechanisms that allow people to establish the proof of who they are and uh, such that they can run around in a digital world uh, and interact with other counterparties with great confidence. And, you know, you're going to need some mechanism to do that, whether it's a, a government or a quasi-government onboarding mechanism that, that does that initial, you know, proving. Uh, so that makes total sense to me. But even once you get beyond that piece of the equation, um, you know, it, it seems to me that the regulations have been written in a way that assumes that that data is maintained and controlled and architected in a certain kind of way. And, you know, we're moving to a decentralized world where, where identity and, uh, and, and what I mean by identity isn't just who I am, but my various different attributes, right? My, my healthcare records, my, my social network, you know, interactions, my, um, my, you know, commerce, uh, retail histories that, that they become, you know, my domain, it's not that, that some company or, or, or healthcare organization that is regulated to maintain, you know, that state information, um, that state information is associated with me. So it's, you know, we're, we're going to, it sounds, seems to me like we're going to have a bit of a challenge to, you know, bridge these worlds that, uh, that those regulations are going to have to be kind of rethought. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I in an ideal world, um, you know, if, if everyone could securely hold all of their personal data themselves, that would be obviously, I think, I think ideal. Um, you know, if, 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 for example, like your medical history could sit on your ledger, uh, or, you know, if, if, if all of your trading history could, could sit on, uh, if everything could sit on a ledger, essentially all of the private information you need. Um, you know, even like, let's say a, a passport or, or a, um, or a driver's license or, or any, any other form of ID. Um, one, one interesting concept that I've seen in play, um, or I've, I've seen in development actually is almost like a, uh, almost like a credit system. So how it would work is essentially like a DAO issuing all of these, uh, digital identities. So for example, like I, I would, I would join, I would purchase uh, and go through the process of, of uh, digitizing my identity and then any transactions that I go through and successfully, uh, you know, participate in would grant me kind of like a, instead of almost like a staking reward, it would be like an additional token. And if an individual came across my profile and said, okay, this is Alex, this is his ID and he has three million of these tokens that means he must have done a ton of transactions truthfully 
He held his, his end of the bargain. I can trust, I can trust transacting with his ID going forward. So but then that begs the question of a, a social credit system. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's, of course that would need its own set of kind of normalized yeah. rules so that those were quantifiable in a, in a, uh, a consistent way, which might in fact require some regulation to establish what yeah. those norms are. So that's it. Now, in that answer, you actually mentioned um, DAOs, which are a really interesting new construct, right? Distributed autonomous organizations and um, or sorry, decentralized autonomous organizations. The, you know, the, they are interesting because most of the regulation that we have, you know, it involves definitions such as corporations and limited partnerships and sole proprietorships. Um and, you know, within each of those definitions, there are lots of, you know, taxation regulations or there are governance or reporting requirements. And there's, there's you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And it's, it's written down and it's been evolved over many, many years. And suddenly we've got this, this new kind of entity that doesn't have a traditional hierarchical governance structure that has potentially, you know, fractionalized um, ownership and that its operations are, you know, automated through smart contract mechanisms. And I can well see it. And on top of that, you know, we're going to have ecosystems of various different economic actors that some of which may in fact be relatively autonomous entities, uh, entities like DAOs. So, you know, how in the world do we adapt the, the regulatory framework that kind of defines what these commercial entities are and which ones and how they should work and what, rules they're subject to when we have this new kind of construct. Yeah, this is probably one of my most favorite topics. I think, I think DAOs are going to be huge this year and in the years coming. Um, and that's exactly it. It's a, it's a brand new form of social organization. And I see some jurisdictions um, kind of making, making good first steps to try and amend some of their corporate legislation to, allow for the registry and legal recognition of DAOs. So for example, you, um, we have Wyoming, which has done this, the Marshall Islands I'm seeing. Um, and I think, uh, an interesting case as well is the, uh, Catawba tribe in North Carolina, who is, is, uh, moving forward and using their sovereignty to be a, uh, web three friendly jurisdiction. And I think they're going to allow for the registry and recognition of DAOs as well. But, um, going back to the question, I think, I think the whole point of uh, of a DAO and like the the progression of it from a corporation reflects uh, evolution, like social evolution and and the evolution of social organization. Because for the long th these these concepts, the corporation, the partnership, sole proprietorship, they've been kind of cemented in in society for hundreds of years. Like you can go back to uh you know the church and look at it as like the original corporation and i think what what needs to happen to properly regulate these these new entities is to sit down and recognize that you know the, it, it doesn't follow these um it doesn't follow these other types of social organization we can't really compare it to a corporation um it, it is its own type of entity and Although I think good first steps have been taken by some jurisdictions, what I've noticed is those jurisdictions which allow the registration of DAOs do so as 
kind of an amendment to their existing corporate law. And it kind of groups the DAO as its own kind of uh, LLC or, or corporation. And, and did you think that's sufficient or at the very least a reasonable stopgap? Or do you really think that it's just not a good fit and it needs to be fundamentally rethought? I think it's a good first step in the sense of, um, you know, okay, let's recognize that this is an actual entity. But I think what needs to happen is, uh, you know, actual uh, an actual new framework or, or statute that comes into play that directly relates to DAOs, how they're made or how they're formed, how they're governed, because the governance process in a DAO is completely different from uh, from a corporation, and and the you know the the whole purpose of a DAO and is is it could be similar, but it. it I think from a fundamental perspective, we're talking about um, participatory democracy versus representative democracy. So participatory seems uh, is more like the DAO, whereas representative democracy is is more like the uh, standard corporation where the shareholders elect directors, those directors make the decisions. Whereas in the DAO, each token holder has its own rights to, you know, put up a proposal and everyone is everyone is participating in the governance rather than just the board of directors. Yeah, I think this that's fascinating. And it, it goes to a really you know, kind of fundamentally fascinating question. And, you know, that has to do with with as more and more elements of our society become automated. Right. How, how do we assess liability? Right. The like the case that a bunch of people are kind of thinking through is, you know, what happens when an automated vehicle gets in, a, in an accident, right? You know, who has liability? Is it the driver and the insurance company that insures the driver, but the driver wasn't driving? Is it the car manufacturer? Is it the, the software provider? Um, you know, how do you assess liability for damage in a world where systems are complex, uh, that they involve many, many components and a lot of automation, um, and so, you know, in, in some ways in a business context, some of these DAOs represent a, a similar sort of phenomenon, right? It's not that they necessarily have a board of directors that you can hold accountable or a management team that you can, you know, throw in jail if they do something, um, or if they cause some sort of damage that, you know, how, how do you, you know, how do you kind of, how do you slot them in to, the, the legal system that, you know, has evolved based on very different kinds of principles about what an entity is and, and, and how responsibility works. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a great question. And we've seen a little bit of a response from courts in the U S about this issue, but I don't, obviously I don't think it's, it's necessarily the best response. Um, currently some courts have said that, um, They'll view uh, liability on a decentralized entity, for example, a DAO, and, and I'm kind of taking from the Uki DAO case in the U.S. where the Commodity right. Futures Trading Commission uh, went after them, and the judge kind of hinted that uh, liability in a decentralized entity would be joint and several amongst all the members of the entity. And I don't think that's necessarily... Again, I think it's a reactive, uh, a reactive claim versus a, you know... Let's see what these what these entities actually are. Let's see what the relationship is. Let's let's see what the hierarchy is, how decisions are made. Um, I, I I don't think it necessarily 
took, has, has fully taken that into account. And I think the analogy is great. Like, you know, it's for, for a lot of DAOs, it's, it's really just the smart contracts and the code that's running and it's automated. And, uh, who, who can you really point to? Right. Because in a truly decentralized project, like Bitcoin, you know, who, who are you going to sue? Who, who, especially if everyone is completely anonymous, like who, who well, can you really go after? Well, exactly. I mean, and who do you, who do you call into court to testify? Right. I mean, the 10,000 token holders, many of which are anonymized. Yeah, you know how do you, how does that work? Yeah, it's 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 going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. I think I think part of what led to that kind of uh, uh, quote from or not quote I should say about like part of part of that decision of the Uki Dao case was, um, I guess, kind of like uh, a little bit of example making. Like, really, I, I don't think the courts are fully prepared to deal with that question just yet so their approach was all right let me just scare everyone and say you're all liable but how how would they even enforce it uh, that i don't know wow yeah that's a that's a real challenge um uh switching gears for just a second the you know one of the areas that um i've been spending a lot of time on lately is is around the supply chain global you know global trade space and there's just so much opportunity uh, to improve things. The pandemic kind of demonstrated just how fragile so many of our supply chains are, just how important they are to the world economy. And there's lots of initiatives around trying to, you know, digitize various different parts of supply chain, especially around documents. But of course, the once again, the the jurisdictional patchwork is very complex and varied. And it's only now that some jurisdictions are figuring out how to give digital documents legal standing. Um, and of course that, you know, uh, beyond that, you've got all kinds of issues around the different, uh, you know, customs and standards issues. The, a lot of the debate around Brexit was around uh, the various different uh, rules and standards that the EU was imposing that, you know, Great Britain didn't, didn't think was necessarily reasonable. All these things are, introduce friction uh, to trade. So how do you see or have you spent any time kind of thinking through or how would you advise a potential client as they kind of thought through designing a, a Web3 or blockchain system that was, you know, tackling these very real world problems, but kind of confronting the reality that, you know, the, the, the rules are so different, the vocabulary is so different uh, from place to place. You know, it's one thing to kind of say that the government should go and kind of figure it all out, and that that's fine. But in the meantime, how do we think through how to do the best we can within the frameworks that we have? I think, um, and I haven't thought it about it so much from the supply chain aspect, but I have thought about it from um, the side of uh, secured uh, lending. And uh, here in Ontario, we have the Personal Property and Security Act, and you can register a loan. Uh, under that act, they have a registry, uh, which contains, you know, every, you know, if I loan you a 50K and we, and we want to register it, we would register it under that act. And I think areas like that where there seems to be a more kind of seamless, um, seamless upgrade into a dis distributed ledger, technology, I, th I think that would be the first step into, you know, starting to 
build out more uh, more distributed ledger systems in the government and allowing them to become more comfortable with it as well. Like um, the reason I, I, I say for secured lending is because the blockchain is, you know, it's, it's the best ledger and it would be able, it, it would fully satisfy its purpose of record keeping all of the loans, what the collateral is, what the maturity dates are. It would, it, you, it would be simple to just be able to pull up that information, store it, and consistently updated. And the biggest thing is in a lot of these claims, like you need to timing is very important, right? So, you know, it, it could be that I registered a claim under this act and the next day, uh, another individual registered, uh, uh, another debt against the person that lent, uh, I loaned money to, and then there's going to be a competition who should get priority. Um, well, it was me because I registered it earlier. And if this, if, if that kind of system was on the blockchain, then it would be incredibly easy to, to figure out, okay, well, this person, this person registered their, uh, that security interest 20 minutes before this other person. So, or, or a patent or, yeah, or a copyright or any number of things. Exactly. I think it would really facilitate a lot of, a lot of, uh, or not facilitate, but really make it clear, you know, that, there isn't really a dispute or solve these disputes. And from there, you know, one system, okay, it works here. Now maybe let's adopt it to land titles and then, okay, great. It's working on land titles. Now let's maybe adopt it to uh, uh, an even bigger system. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I think you're probably right. It, it seems to me pretty obvious that one of the lowest, you know, the lowest hanging fruit out there is to, you know, reform some of the auditing uh, regulations and, you know, some of the record keeping um, and registry stuff, because yeah, this is a, an obvious mechanism that has certain attributes that frankly obviate some of the existing regulation or the need for some of the existing regulations. So that seems a you know, pretty obvious and easy place to start. Um, so my, one of my, my, my final question here is, you know, you, you run a, a law practice that specializes in helping companies navigate uh, this very complex irregular evolving you know legal landscape you know what are the what are the common questions that you get asked and what's the most what's the what's the most important question that that companies forget to ask so the number one i i would actually say this is just a straight up starting point anytime uh, i'm approached by what three project is are you a security or are you not a security? And that's, that's unfortunately the, the one thing that we have to go through and, and usually uh, produce some kind of legal opinion or, or memorandum that they can rely on in the future in case anything goes wrong. Um, the question that I think um, a, lot of, a lot of founders and builders in the space should consider is, is the offshore question. Um, and, and really, I hate to say it because, um, I wish Canadian regulation was friendlier, but, uh, unfortunately, um, a lot of, a lot of the times, uh, I'm, I'm asking projects to, Hey, are you, are you comfortable with, you know, potentially having a headquarters in Panama or Cayman or, you know, depending on your operations, you might be better off 
you might be better off making your HQ in Luxembourg or Switzerland. And this isn't just for, for tax avoidance reasons, or, sorry, tax optimization reasons. This is for... No, no, this, this is for operations. For operations. Yeah. yeah, like for example, if a tokenization company comes to me, I'll ask them, well, have you thought about setting up shop in Luxembourg instead? Because they've recently amended their legislation so that tokenized securities can be uh, offered on their uh, public stock exchange. It might be an easier time for you to operate and register there instead versus uh, versus Canada, where the OSC has pretty much put a prohibition on liquidity for, for uh, tokenization uh, startups. Huh. Wow. Okay. Well, I think that's actually very good and sage advice. Well, um, any other, before we, before we close, are there any other kind of pearls of wisdom that, uh, you think we should, you know, talk about? Oh, I, I don't know if I have, I don't think I have enough gray hairs to be giving out pearls <laughs> of wisdom, but, um, I, I would say the best thing, you know, even, even in terms of, um, even in terms of, of, of legal for, for people building in the space and for people interested in the space, things are always moving. Um, obviously things move much faster with tech, but you know, the wheel still turns when it comes to, to, uh, regulation as well. I think the, you know, if, if I could leave off with just like one, it, one message, if someone could just take anything from this, I think the, what we need is the most in 2023 is, is a push for education in the space. I think, um, you know, the more people that can be educated, uh, the more regulators that can be educated, um, the more people that can participate and the more regulators that can actually participate in the space and, and see, uh, what's, you know, what's really going on and that, you know, not everyone who's building is trying to build a security or an investment product. There's a lot of people that are building that generally just, uh, you know, want to, want to make the world a better place or a more efficient place. So I think, if 2023 could be the year of uh, education in, in this uh, in the blockchain industry for for individuals that are not in the industry or that are interested, um, I think that that should be the focus. And it's a long term thing. It's a long term uh, investment. Yeah. So I, I think that is a great piece of advice. That you know, if if we really want to see our economies and our societies take advantage of this remarkable new technology and explore it for all of the potential that it holds that we need to engage, right? We need to have these discussions. We need to talk to people. We need to explain what this is to people, you know, over dinner. Um, we need to engage with policymakers and business people to, you know, help them understand. I think that's a, a great call to action. Oh, that's, you know, of course, very much what we at the Blockchain Research Institute have, you know, trying to be trying to do. Uh, and I think, and, and, you, and you pointed out, that this is a long-term project. In the short term, I suspect that your advice for any company getting into this space would be to consult a lawyer that has specialized knowledge about how these systems work. That would be the short-term yeah. advice? <laughs> 100% and be careful out there because um, there are a lot of professionals who I think are uh, capitalizing on the popularity of the space. Uh, but I, th I think, you know, have a discussion with the, with the people you consult, get a little bit of background, do some due diligence and, and see, you know, their involvement in the space and, 
and uh, their experience in this space as well. And I think I think that makes a big difference because I've had clients of mine come from other law firms or from other lawyers who or other professionals who you know they they were not completely happy with or they thought okay that you know this individual wants to do it uh, this way and they they might already know that okay well this way is a little bit outdated or they're not completely keeping up with the tech or they don't see me see them at the community events things like that like i think web3 has a really kind of like strong community base and foundation in the sense of uh not just a community a decentralized community so um if, if you're looking for professionals um ask the community about them because if, if they're involved and they're reputable community will know about them well thank you so much alex this but this has been great fun um and thank you very much for helping us better understand how we need to think about regulation as we embark or continue our web3 and blockchain journey and thank you all for joining us for this episode of W3B Talks. You can find out more information on this topic and many other topics at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. I'm your host, Doug Heinzman. We hope that you will join us for our next episode of W3B Talks.